gentlemen. We have a special treat for you today. We have the one, the only. Welcome to the State Lines Network. Hey, friends. Welcome to the Boldly Going Podcast, episode 22. It's crazy. Cannot believe we've already got 22 episodes of the podcast. Um, I was just hoping we would make it to 10 episodes. So thanks for sticking with us. 22 episodes. Amazing. Uh, Again, creative, brilliant, inspirational people of the universe on planet Earth that we like to interview uh, here uh, on the Boldly Going Podcast. And today is one of those days, like all of them. But today's episode is fantastic. One of my favorite people, a guy named Frank Wells. Uh, he is a uh, native, like sixth generation native, St. Petersburgian. Saint, however you say that, I don't know. From St. Petersburg, Florida. He's a native. Um, he's been there his whole life. He's been generations in St. Pete. And uh, he's doing some incredible things. Just some brilliant stuff with uh, with power, clean energy sources. He's got a company called World Power and Energy, and uh, uh, sorry, World Power and Water. And uh, he's he's uh, they've developed ways of of uh, using water energy to create power for cities or for islands, and uh, doing some great work in that. Should definitely uh, we talk a lot about that. We talk about uh, his passion of what he calls uh, sustainable abundance, and that's being abundant in the in the life that you're living and the work that you're doing, but it being sustainable as well for the planet, for the community, all those things. It's a passion of his life. You can you can hear it uh, in the undertone of everything that we talk about in this episode. And uh, the other thing that we talk about, the big thing that he's working on right now in uh, the city of St. Petersburg, is called the Venture House. He's the founder of a of a thing called Venture House. Uh, it's an idea. It's a plan of creating homes uh, for uh, for artists, entrepreneurs. Uh, to help build community, to help people launch their businesses uh, while giving them places to live as well. Really cool idea. We're going to talk about it a lot. You can check out more of what he's doing online at venture, venture-house.org, venture-house.org. Uh, go check him out there. See what he's doing with Venture House in St. Pete. Incredible work. I think you're going to love it. Something you'd want to be involved with, and uh, hopefully, we'll be expanding all over the all over the country. So, uh, this uh, this episode is great. We recorded it sitting in the middle of Venture House, which is uh, in the demo stage of construction right now. It's just kind of torn apart. It's the middle. Uh, you know, walls have been torn down. There's uh, you know just stuff everywhere. Construction work everywhere in the house, and we sat in there, no power or anything, but we sat in the middle of the house and uh, talked about the Venture House, the dream he has for that. Really, really cool. It's in progress. Uh, it's going to be a great episode, so uh, um, stick in there, uh, listen to it. You're going to get some inspirational stuff out of it. As always, uh, check out our podcast network, the State Lines podcast network that we're a part of. Uh, we're just one podcast among many and um, uh, among many uh, other podcasts and among many other articles and uh, brilliant writings that's on, on the website. So go check that out, state-lines.com. Go check out all the other uh, great things on there. And uh, again, as always, I'd like to encourage you to get involved in your community, do things. This is why we interview people like Frank Wells that are doing things like the Venture House. We want you to be involved in your community. We think it's important. I think it's important. And of course, I would love for you to be a part of my organization, doing that through my organization and what we do uh, called Current Initiatives with the Laundry Project, Hope for Homes Project, and Affordable Christmas that's coming up uh, next 
next month, actually, we'll be doing Affordable Christmas at four locations across the United States, three here in the Tampa Bay area, two in Tampa itself, one in Tarpon Springs, and then also one in Canton, Ohio, which is where our second office is. If you're listening in one of those areas, we would love for you to be involved in Affordable Christmas. Uh, the concept we do there, you can go online to engagecurrent.org, uh, find out more about the Affordable Christmas, find out about laundry projects, hope for home projects, and how you can be involved. Please get involved in some way in your community. All right, let's jump into this episode with uh, Frank Wells, the brilliant uh, St. Pete native, uh, doing some great things in the community. So hang on. Episode 22 with Frank Wells about sustainable abundance. I'm going to do a whole lot of editing right up front. Um, there's, some, there's some stuff right at the beginning, but um, I don't do like an official intro or anything other than just to say, Frank Wells, welcome to the podcast. We're in the middle of the uh, Venture House in South St. Pete, right? It's, a, it's right. called Venture House, correct? This is the first Venture House. You are right in the middle of the construction. <laughs> and uh, it's close to you. Um, so, yeah, it literally is a construction zone. There's brick everywhere. There's walls torn out. Um, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit because I'm really interested and fascinated by what you're doing with the Venture House. Cool. Um, part of the reason I wanted to have you on the on the podcast because of that, because I want people to hear about what you're doing. And sure. then also um, what you're doing, uh, your other business is the world... World Power and Water. World yep. Power and Water, yeah. Sure. Um, which I'm really fascinated about the things you're doing with awesome. that as well. So Great. Thanks for being on. So um, I guess give a little background for... You You grew up here in St. Pete, correct? Right. So I'm actually Generation 6 in Pinellas County, believe it or not. Wow. If you know McMullen Booth Road in North County, my mom's side of the family are McMullens. So old... Uh, really? Old, old settlers, yeah. So they're basically named after... I mean, part of your family has has the namesake to that road. Yeah, which you know, at some point went from somebody's farm to somebody else's farm. Uh, you know, and now it's a big old way to get up to the suburbs. But that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <clears throat> okay, so sixth generation St. Pete. Um, what did you? So I guess talk a little bit of, first of all about World Power and Water. What what uh, what that's about? How you got into that? What your goal is? Sure. So I used to do consulting work with nonprofits and NGOs. And uh, the last big consulting project that we worked on uh, was an environmental research project. So in working on that, I spent a year and a half working with a whole bunch of amazing scientists and engineers uh, looking at some really interesting technology. And I thought after a while, hmm, this technology is fascinating and a lot of it's not getting deployed commercially, not for any lack of technical merit, but because scientists are not business people. Hmm. Wouldn't it be cool if I could figure out how to take some of this technology, uh, specifically in the ocean energy and freshwater arena, uh, and get that to market? So that was how World Power and Water started back in 2007. Uh, you know, just the perfect time to be launching a business right as the economy was about to crash. But, yep. <laughs> but uh, somehow we survived, so... Yeah, that's uh, that's how World Power and Water got started. So, um, I think that's an interesting. One reason why I think that's an interesting thing, just because the political political climate that we're in, talking about energy, talking about you know affordable energy, uh, sustainable energy, that kind of stuff. Um, you've basically kind of found a way using water 
for, and you don't just do it necessarily do it here in the states, but you do it in in like some island countries and. Right, so the, the technology we work with is called Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion, OTEC. Um, OTEC will work anywhere there's warm surface water and cold, very deep water. So we need some temperature differential, and out of that difference you can make electricity. Um, the concept is 130-some-odd years old. Uh, there was some great research done back in the 70s, 80s, 90s by the National Renewable Energy Lab out in Hawaii. And we simply figured out how to make a commercially viable project out of it and deploy it down in the Caribbean. That was our, our first target market. Okay. Uh, we got as far as a draft version of a power purchase agreement, which is the utility company agrees to buy electricity from you if you build the plant for uh, 20 years or something like that, uh, but then we got clobbered by oil going from 110 bucks a barrel down to a third of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is usually the killer to any. Uh, I feel like any uh, creative alternative energy plan. Yeah. Well, you know, we were trying to do this on a really market-driven kind of basis, and so the agreement that we'd been negotiating with the utility company was: look, tell us how much you pay for power now. And if you're a small Caribbean island, you probably make your power from diesel. So when the price of oil goes up, the price of diesel goes up. So the price of electricity on the island goes up. Uh, so they gave us that number. We ran the numbers and said, yeah, we can build you a plant that will make electricity at that same price. And you don't have to import diesel to do it. No pollution, no ongoing fuel costs. Uh, has a lot of environmental benefits. Mm -hmm. And it's a great way to lock in that price for electricity. We went out and raised a whole bunch of funding to build the project, and then we watched while the price of oil softened and then kept sinking. And so, you know, those projects were on hold. We talked to a different country as well and, and had a second project in the works, and all that's on hold these days. Interesting. It's so fascinating how, with all the, it's like a, it's almost like a double double-edged sword of like gas prices going down crude oil, all that kind of stuff going down, good essentially for the everyday person driving their car around, going to work, right. sure. great for them economically. But then someone like you who's trying to create some alternative energy plans for countries that largely are second and third world. Right, right. It's a it's killer to them. So it's almost this weird two double-edged sword of sorts. It's really true, and uh, it, it's one reason why I think in the current political climate – we're being pretty foolish to talk about uh, bringing back coal jobs and increasing the oil and gas industry jobs. Those are so tied to the, the market price of oil and natural gas <clears throat> and the, the cost of electricity that comes from the price of natural gas. Uh, they're not hugely responsive to government influence. You know, the environmental regulation side of things is very secondary in that whole U.S. utility market. Mm. Yeah. Um, so for when you so if that were to work, like what's the what is the what's the best case scenario for your situation to work, and what's the benefit to that country and all that? So we recognize in countries like that because we need warm ocean water as uh, the the fuel source, the energy source for a project like this 
the countries that are good candidates for this are often at the pointy end of the spear in terms of sea level rise. Most of them are already having measurable impacts uh, from climate change in two ways. One, that the sea level is rising, and when you're an island country, you care about every meter of beachfront that you lose, and also from ocean acidification effects. A lot of these islands are so heavily dependent on tourism, and when those coral reefs start to die off, that affects both the subsistence fishing industry that a lot of uh, people from the islands live off of, and it hugely impacts the tourism industry. No coral reef, no pretty fish, no scuba diving, no snorkeling. Mm. Uh, so they're very interested in these kinds of clean energy because they'd like to do what they can. Um, and you know, the diesel that they run for generation is typically very polluting. It causes air pollution on the island. It causes noise pollution, so nobody wants to live next to it. But if you're on a small island and real estate is very constrained, somebody has to live next to the diesel generator that cranks 24-7 to make power for the island. So. Right. Interesting. So, um, benefit-wise, for them being, it's better It's better on their environment, so it keeps their tourism. How does it, how do, does that play out in a, in a scenario of them as a country or an island making making money off of that? Like, is it is it better for their economy outside of the tourism part or the the things that we have discussed with them pretty heavily with a couple of different islands one uh, that the the places that do this that commit to getting off of fossil fuels really become ecotourism destinations mm. uh, people a certain segment of the tourist population and it typically is a very affluent tourist wants to go somewhere that says hey we put a uh, premium on the environment. We want to take care of our natural resources here. Uh, that's a, a the kind of uh, tourist consumer that that the islands want to see coming and staying. And uh, it, you know the other benefit for the island is that it locks in for the long run the cost of electricity. So when we find the right mix, the price of oil starts to go up again. These projects become attractive again. Uh, no matter how high the price of oil goes, the price of electricity stays the same. Mm. And in a lot of cases, uh, you know, an electric bill down there can be a thousand dollars a month or more. If you have a, say, two thousand square foot house, which would be a bigger house but not huge. Wow. Uh, yeah, they're paying typically three to four times what we're paying for electricity. That's insane. Oh wait, it gets better. So, <clears throat> because most of these islands are also. Uh, desert islands, in other words, they have very low precipitation in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. They have very low freshwater reserves, so they make most of their municipal water supply from desalination. Okay. To desalinate water by reverse osmosis, the usual process, you take seawater and you pump it really hard, you squeeze it through a very, very fine filter, mm -hmm. and out comes fresh water, <clears throat> and what you're left with is extra salty water. <clears throat> But that's hugely energy intensive. So the first time we were down discussing the first project we were working on, one of the engineers we were working with said, man, I can't wait until you get this working. You're going to save me a huge amount on my water bill. And I said, water's a pretty extraneous part of our project as we think about it. And he said, no, no, I had guests last month for most of the month, and our water bill was over 300 bucks. 
Holy cow. Watermelon. <clears throat> and then he explained to me, look, we make our water by consuming a huge amount of electricity to process the water to make the fresh water. So when electricity prices are high in the islands, water prices are high. So people get this double whammy that wow. their utility bills are way, way higher. Wow. And, you know, if, if their uh, average per capita income is half of what it is in the U.S., that's pretty good. I can't imagine. I'm not affluent in any way, but I pay my bills and I right. make a decent uh, income. Right. So try and to imagine. I can't imagine paying a $1,000 electric bill. Right. And even when oil prices are low, I mean, imagine doubling your electric bill. <clears throat> they think of that as a low electric bill. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. And, and probably triple or quadruple your water bill. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so the system that we developed uh, produces both electricity and fresh water by a different kind of system. So uh, the water supply piece of it is a fairly economically important addition to the municipal supply in a lot of these countries as well. So that so let's say you built a plant there. That plant will supply supply will essentially supply that energy and water for. So the and, the first project uh, that we spec'd out was roughly ten percent of the island's electricity <clears throat> supply. Okay. So a, a big project, but that island was running I don't know roughly a dozen generators in a couple of banks around the island. So. This would be the equivalent of kind of taking one or two of their older generators offline and replacing it with a cleaner electricity source. So we felt like that was a pretty good balance. Okay. Uh, we looked at another island to do a project on where when they initially approached us, it was to do the same size project, but for them that would have been 30 or 40% of their total electricity supply. And we said, that's probably not the right place to start. Let's start talking about doing some solar on the island. Let's start talking about doing some energy efficiency stuff. Um, you know, if you throw up a building with concrete blocks and put a simple tin roof over it, you have no insulation. Mm -hmm. Sun's beating down all day. You can air condition it, but an awful lot of that energy goes right out the roof. Mm -hmm. you, you might as well, you're, you're better off spending the same amount of money to insulate the roof and insulate the walls and then have a, a smaller air conditioning unit that consumes less electricity in the long run you save a whole lot of money. So uh, there are lots of things like that that, that uh, island countries and you know we in the US could do. The economics aren't quite as pressing for most of us but uh, we talked with those utility companies about kind of looking at this in a holistic way even though would have been most beneficial for us. Sure, let's just go build plants. But mm -hmm. if you're really looking at how you solve energy issues for places like this, you got to be looking at the demand side of it, not just the supply side of it. Interesting. I think that idea. I, I'm real passionate about. Um, you know, when it comes to changing the world, I think people get too overwhelmed mm -hmm. by those things. So, for example, looking at an island like that and going, "How do we change the entire? How do we change the entire energy process right. for this island?" is almost impossible and, and way too daunting. Mm -hmm. um, so, taking that chunk of ten percent, we could take two of your ten generators offline right. and make them cleaner. Right. And I think a lot of people get hung up 
with that because I, I don't, maybe it's an American thing. We're so conditioned to get everything right now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, as opposed to, right, this is the first step. And this is going to take, you know, X number of years to get there. But at least we can get two of ten right now. Right. You know? and, and that's one of the things I think is often missing in the conversation about clean energy now. Uh, I have a lot of uh, environmentalist friends whom I love dearly. But a lot of times I think our... Uh, leading environmental organizations do a lousy job of saying, you know what, we have probably a couple trillion dollars if we added it up, sunk into energy infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It would make no sense at all to shut down all of that and erect solar and wind if we could do it with just that and ocean energy and whatever else, geothermal, whatever else we want to use because we'd lose all that capacity. You know, what we need to be talking about is how we make it smart enough to make it economically feasible to replace new generation. And as we take old stuff offline after it retires after 40 years or something, mm -hmm. replace that with new renewable capacity. But it's, uh, when you look at the cost of building new solar capacity and especially new wind capacity, you can almost make the case it's better to build wind than it is to build natural gas, certainly better than to build coal these days, even in the uh, absence of environmental regulation. But that's not the same thing as saying it's economically feasible to suddenly shut off all the existing mm -hmm. power supply and build new to replace that too. So <clears throat> a lot of times that gets left out of the equation and what we're talking about in new capacity in the U.S. is like 1.5% a year in growth, it's not like let's replace ten percent, twenty percent, the whole the thing, grid. right? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you? Th I guess what do you think the 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 message problem is there? Is it a PR thing? Is it a, we're trying to do too much instead of making it bite sized for people? Well, and the other thing I think we often leave out of the equation. Uh, you know, I have a, a lot of politician friends who at least publicly are skeptical about climate change mm -hmm. and what I say to them is forget what you think about the environmental benefits of this one way or the other we can argue till we're blue in the face about this but mm -hmm. you have a belief about this that is different from mine and we're just <laughs> arguing think about the jobs you know you can export a natural gas job because that natural gas can be drilled in countries all over the planet and imported. You can't export the guy who installs solar panels on your roof. Mm. Uh, and that's where the growth industry is in the 21st century. The, the growth industry in energy is not in oil and gas and coal. The growth industry is in building the wind turbines and installing them and building the solar panels and installing them and developing the next generation of ocean energy and geothermal energy and why aren't we having the conversation about how to create those jobs in the United States and in Florida particularly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's smart. I, and I, to me, the, the climate change part of it is it's important, but I think it's, I think it's the secondary argument personally mm -hmm. because you're right people could argue all day over what causes climate change and on and on all that kind of stuff to me 
it looks like it's more of a it's more of a but what's the we've we continue to advance technologically in all kinds of places right like we want better cars we want smarter products in our home we want all these other things but we it's almost like we don't want smarter energy type things and to me like that's the better to me that's the better argument of well it's just we should be advancing in these ways like we've sure. figured out ways technological ways to pull energy in this way that's just a better thing to do and, and I would say I mean it was very very instructive to me when we started working on that second project where we said building an ocean energy plant of, of you know our design is not the right first step for you let's work with the utility company and create a solar project that integrates well with the grid and let's figure out how to take some of your diesel offline and as we got into designing this we realized okay so the the uh, maximum output from a solar farm right is the middle of the afternoon which is not exactly peak demand time peak demand is when people come home at five o'clock mm-hmm. flip on the lights flip on the AC and start cooking dinner all at the same time yeah that's a little bit after the peak solar output so take that offset in mind as I say we spec'd out a solar project that at its peak output which is not peak demand time was like 40% of the island's energy consumption which is really cool that lets you take 40% of the diesel generators offline right until a bunch of clouds come over Okay, and then you start thinking about hmm what do we do to make sure that when clouds go by, the entire island's power grid doesn't crash. Mm. Like, oh, we got to put some battery in the system, some storage to buffer this. And there's some really cool new technology that does, like, micro-forecasting. It watches cloud patterns okay. as they change on the fly and says, ah, we're about 10 minutes out from a big cloud coming by. Better start spinning up that diesel generator. Doing all that kind of planning as well as talking about some of the energy efficiency stuff really made me realize the complexities of these things from the utility company's point of view mm-hmm. and why they're so conservative with their approach to things. A lot of utilities, you know, you, you got to keep in mind their investment in any piece of infrastructure is 30 years projected life. And they're probably going to run it for 40 or 50 if they can get that out of it. Mm -hmm. That's a long, long, long term investment. You want to make sure that what you invest in is a good investment for all of your customers for the next 30 years. So you're skeptical about any kind of new technology because once you bought it, you bought it. Um, and, And you worry about the stability of the system when you start integrating things that don't behave like generators. You know, generator, you put diesel in it. And it just runs and runs and runs and runs. Mm-hmm. And you know what the maintenance cycle's like. And you know where to get a spare part when it breaks. And uh, So I, I do understand why utility companies are so skeptical about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, or so foot-dragging about it. Sure. And at the same time, I think, you know, couldn't you look back 150 years to when railroads were the dominant mode of transportation? Uh, cars were kind of a toy that you could drive around town, but there was no interstate system there wasn't even much of a highway system to get around the country if you were a railroad baron then and you had thought ah that's the next generation i'm going to own general motors and the u.s highway system i'm going to get out in front of this Mm -hmm. and you know the b and o railroad is going to become b and o transit Mm -hmm. 
Um, it, I think the same thing with utility companies these days. Like, why are you on the front lines of keeping anything from happening instead of saying, hey, we're multi-billion dollar companies with monopoly interests in, in most states in some way or another. We could own the utility, we could own the renewable energy industry. Mm -hmm. We could be on the forefront of developing it and have all that technology, knowledge. I don't know. I don't get it, but... Yeah, I don't either. But I, I think there's something to that that old adage that um, necessity is the mother sure. invention. I think you look back, like railroads, for example, um, somewhat was a necessity as things like, you know, we're going to try to get across the country, but how do we get goods and services that far away yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I feel like I, I don't know that we're there on the energy side of necessity yet. I mean, I think we are, but most everyday people don't see that. Right, for sure, because when you come in, you flip on the light switch and the lights come on. And the biggest challenge that we face as a country is from the climate change effects that we're starting to feel, but they're so subtle um, and, and long-term. I think most people have their heads, have a hard time wrapping their heads around. Mm -hmm. yeah, how is this really affecting me and how much <clears throat> more am I really willing to pay um, to, to do something actively about this? And we haven't done much to encourage really creative solutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's really unfortunate. That's one of the things I wish we had done uh, at the beginning of the recession was pulled out all the stops and invested in upgrading our infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We worked on a, a world power and water project uh, where we were putting our, our project financing connections to work for another project developer. It was a gigantic wind project out west. And at the end of the day, the numbers worked for a multi-hundred million, like north of half a billion dollar project. But we couldn't get the power to market because there's not enough transition, transmission to get the wind energy from the middle of nowhere in the plains oh, to a city where it's needed. And the waiting list to get a project essentially connected into the grid at that kind of scale is measured in years. Wow. And, you know, to build new transmission capacity like that is billions and billions of dollars, which would have made awesome construction projects and put a whole lot of people to work, uh, you know, in, in the recession when we had so many people unemployed. Mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't do that. And I think, you know, that that had unemployment effects that we could have solved. And it's also continues to hamper our uh, adoption of new energy technologies. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate on something here real quick. Sure. Because the transmission, getting it from way out here to, because like those wind things, you almost, it almost can't be near a city because they need that yep. vast space, right? So it's miles away. You've got to transfer all that, getting it to there. So let me play devil's advocate on the, for example, something we're looking at right now with that, the pipeline mm -hmm. from wherever it's at, I forget the name of it. Um, essentially the same argument for them, isn't it? Of it's all out here. We just have to get it from there to where it's usable here. Right. But with electricity, we don't worry about electron spills. 
in the same way that okay. having an oil pipeline, you worry about having an oil spill and polluting a river, uh, and especially when that runs through lands that are sacred to somebody else, that are mm. that are mm-hmm. historically important to somebody else, sure, uh, and that are you know beautiful wild lands that we want to preserve. So, you know, I'm not totally anti-pipeline ever. I mean, I I think anybody <clears throat> who drives a car should tread really lightly around uh, criticizing oil. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, if we're going to use right. gasoline, let's be honest that we have an investment in that infrastructure. And, you know, unless we want to pay a lot more for it to get it by the, you know, most safe possible way by a very circuitous route, then, you know, we're all invested in uh, the existing infrastructure. So, uh, but at the same time, I feel like we do often let big companies kind of bully their way through Mm -hmm. local governments because a lot of that regulatory stuff, um, you know, you hire a bunch of lobbyists and they spend a lot of time in D.C. and the, the people on the ground that you're talking about really are not well represented in the process. Right. There's, there's so many layers removed from that. And so I think people feel unheard. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think we um, are experiencing another version of the people feeling unheard in the you know current election cycle here. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's that's true. It's interesting to me that the a lot of the same arguments on on that side, you know, for example, pro pipeline is it's going to create a lot of jobs because we're building this pipeline and all the things that come in that come into play with yeah we're building we're building a thing so it's creating these jobs which is going to up the the you know workforce around here people are going to be frequenting restaurants more and all these kinds of things all these layers that go into that Um, and again to me it's it's almost uh, like you have to start small in a sense of like we're sitting in St. Pete how do we make St. Pete, or even a neighborhood, you might even have to start smaller than that yeah. on new energy type things. I, I was out in North Dakota. I did this uh, statewide leadership program, and as part of that, we spent two weeks, a week in D.C., and then a week out in a couple other states, including North Dakota, out in the Bakken oil fields, and talked with some of the local folks, you know, the sheriff and the county highway department and those kind of people, and they said, yes, we're making, our, our budgets have increased substantially because all those big over-the-road trucks that haul the, uh, you know, oil drilling rigs around pay, you know, excess weight fees, but it's nowhere near enough to actually keep up with the infrastructure demand. They said, you know, we used to replace these roads every 15 years, and now we need to replace them every 18 months. Wow. You know, you can double or triple your user fees but that doesn't give you enough capacity. It doesn't give you enough people to um, possibly take care of, you know, something that that has decreased the life cycle of something by ninety percent. Uh, and they said, you know, for what government employees get paid, you, nobody came along and magically gave us the ability to pay our highway workers twice as much. Mm-hmm. So. You know, anybody that can has quit and gone to work at the oil fields because they can make twice as much money. Yeah. Uh, the We had a, uh, you know, somebody in, in command level from the sheriff's department, and he said he drives 90 minutes on a good day each way to and from work. Because wow. that was the, where he and his wife can afford to live. 
wow. crazy. Yeah. And because he believes in his career in law enforcement, mm -hmm. but got priced right out of the market. And, you know, as soon as the price of oil went below 70 bucks a barrel, most of that new drilling stops and those towns that, you know, tripled and quadrupled in population lose half of that population in the space of a year. And all the new infrastructure you started to put in place has nobody to use it. And so, yeah, we, we don't always do a great job of, of planning this stuff out. Mm -hmm. You know, we have these mini gold rushes and, yeah, you know, I think downtown St. Pete's having a bit of its own mini gold rush look, a new block, if we just knock down that building or build right. over top of that one, right. we could put up a new condo tower. Yeah. That's yeah. It is an interesting thing to see cities where I go, wow, I didn't know they could find more land to build something on, but they did. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know where that came from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, uh, before we move on to talking about Venture House stuff, I'm curious, in, in a scenario like with you with your clean water or not with clean energy with water and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. What realistically, if that were to happen on a large scale, like say for the United States, how long would it take to really get where you're, where we're really independent of that, of the, of the other to that? I, so I used to have a slide in the presentations I did, uh, a few years ago when I was out actively raising awareness about our technology and, uh, you know, imagine a projector screen, right? And if, I, if the screen is, you know, three feet by four feet, imagine a square that is like one inch square in there. And imagine that that's the capacity that's 10% of the, the whole island's use, right? That was our mm -hmm. first plant. And then now imagine that I fill the entire rest of the screen with a big red rectangle and I would ask people, want to take a wild guess what this is? And then I would click the button again and the hammer and sickle would appear and I would say, this is what China is going to build in new energy capacity this week. Wow. Um, and they're going to keep building it week after week after week after week after week. So um, <laughs> the, the scale of things that it would take to... Um, really change uh, change things on a global scale is is pretty pretty amazing um, 10 megawatts the size of that project we would call that roughly 7500 US households worth of usage most other okay. countries don't use anywhere near as much electricity as we do like half or something per capita but okay so you can wrap your head around this that's not businesses that's not industrial uses and typically it breaks down roughly a third is residential, a third is commercial business, and a third is industrial, if you want to picture it that way. So mm -hmm. 10 megawatts, 7,500 U.S. households. I mean, do the math, 350 million people in the country. Wow. It's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of megawatts um, that yeah. you have to build a new capacity. I mean, we figured that we were... If we built that project, we were two generations away from doing a project in the U.S. because you'd need to do it, uh, you know, at least ten times larger to even possibly come close to uh, workable economics for the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. And you'd probably want to do it 
20 or 30 or 40 times bigger to make it workable in the US market. And that would be wow. that would be a small new construction plant for a US utility company to build. Hmm. Like a, a typical so if that project was 10 megawatts that we were working on for the Caribbean, a typical new US plant is going to be 600 to maybe 1200 megawatts of capacity wow. in one plant, natural gas. Wow. So 60 to 120 times as big. <clears throat> and the US is only building new capacity maybe 1.5% a year. Our energy demand's not growing all that much. China's energy demand, last time I looked, was growing 6 or 7% a year. Wow, really? Yeah. They still use way less than we do per capita, but there are also four times as many people there. Mm. Three and a half times as many people there. So, yeah. Um, huge amounts of new demand. And, you know, India's growing very quickly as well. So is, you know, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Mexico, uh, all sorts of other places around the world. So it's pretty fascinating to look at. Wow. How you do these things on a global kind of scale? Yeah, it's interesting. It see like it hurts my brain. Everything that you just said, <laughs> yeah. thinking in those in those numbers. The the it's one of the most fun in a weird kind of way. Fun things about having worked on these projects is after a while, it's all just more zeros in a spreadsheet. So you start to throw around numbers like, ah, blah, 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 150 million bucks, ah, 650 million bucks, ah, 10,000 households, ah, 100,000, 3 million people, blah, blah. If not, you'd just go crazy, I think. Yeah, that's great. That, man, that's amazing. Um, just out of curiosity, why did you get into that? Like, what drove you to be that being a passion? I was always interested in environmental things um, like all the way back in uh, college I belonged to the Sierra Club I used to get you know fundraiser letters from the junior senator from Tennessee who turned out to be Al Gore our oh, vice president okay. yeah. um, you know way before he was prominent on the national stage he was maybe the most prominent politician at that point uh, you know around 1990 yeah. I was active on environmental issues, so um, I still look back at that and chuckle a little bit. But um, I also feel like when you don't understand these issues, you don't understand the technology, you don't understand the socioeconomic dynamics, the technology possibilities will give you a pass. But once you understand the scope of the problem, and you know that there's something practical that you could do about it, uh, I feel like you get to make the choice. Do I step up and take responsibility and do something, or do I walk away from it and uh, try to ignore it? Mm -hmm. And I felt like when I worked on that uh, kind of research project that led me into World Power and Water, it was, ah, okay, so now I'm aware of some things that potentially could be a globally interesting solution to some of the things we're dealing with. How do you produce enough new energy, new resources? The way we used to frame it, I think the way I would still describe it, you know, if you look around the world in the next 10, 12, 15 years, we have a billion new consumers coming onto the grid. Mm -hmm. So 
it's not just that populations are growing fast in China and India and Brazil and so forth, but their uh, standard of living is rising really fast. Mm. So those two things just multiply. Everybody wants to have a car and a laptop and a cell phone and eat mm -hmm. a Big Mac mm -hmm. and have air conditioning. And that consumes a huge amount of resources. If everybody wanted to live the way Americans live, but given uh, the amount of resources we basically need for planet Earth's, yeah. not enough to go around the way we do it. And so the question is not uh, how are they, you know, we, we can't realistically say, well, we got it. Sorry, you can't have it. Yeah. That's not going to be a workable solution. So what do we do to provide a sustainable path toward uh, this kind of abundant lifestyle that we enjoy? That's why our, our tagline on my business cards reads sustainable abundance. Mm. Like how do we bend the needle on that kind of global scale toward more sustainable futures for that billion new consumers? Interesting. Which I feel like is a... It seems, with the stuff that you're doing, that seems like a theme for you. Um, yeah. So, for example, like with Venture House, it's probably a good transition to that. Sure. I feel like it's kind of the same thing. It's a sustainable abundance. In the sense that, you know, you're in a neighborhood that is largely lower income. Mm -hmm. and But you're trying to help bring some abundance and sustainability for... It's like, a, it's like two-sided of what you're doing with the Venture House. Yeah, it's really true. And, you know, a lot of it, to me, in, in this really local level, is feeling like I had it so good growing up. You know, I, I grew up in a kind of upper-middle-class family. I got to go to a private school and get a great education Um I took classes at the Science Center in the summers. We took some cool family vacations. We got to go walk on the nature trail, and uh, my mom was mostly able to stay home and take care of kids and take us to Boy Scouts. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, both my parents were really involved with me, and I feel like um, when I say level the playing field, to me that means leveling it up so that everybody else has the same amazing kind of opportunities. Mm. Like, every kid that's interested should be able to take classes at the Science Center or join the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts. Uh, you know, have parents that are engaged with them and that help with their homework and, um, you know, help you get your first job in the summer and all that kind of stuff. And the reality is we have uh, a lot of people that have a lot of privilege in St. Petersburg and wonderful. Um, but we also have a lot of people who are really struggling mm -hmm. and uh, I feel like we have a moral obligation to take care of the least of these, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's a lot of what what drives me to do this. Yeah. That's awesome. So um Give the, I guess, the overall picture of what Venture House is, what the what the purpose of it is. We're sitting in the middle of it, and it's kind of torn apart right now. <laughs> uh, right. But it's a, it's a, so this one being the problem, and I'm assuming it's just, this is one in the beginning of 
hopefully more, correct? Right, right. So the vision behind Venture House <coughs> is if you look at downtown St. Pete, we're doing great. We're building new million-dollar condos left and right. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you look in South St. Pete, here we are years after the recession, and we still have hundreds of boarded-up vacant houses. Mm -hmm. uh, this house is a fabulous example of that. Uh, as best we can piece the story together, a family was living here and renting it from somebody who stopped making the mortgage payments, the bank foreclosed, they stayed after the foreclosure, and then got evicted with 24 hours notice if you stay past the foreclosure, right? Wow. Um, and then the house was just abandoned, and it sat here for a year, give or take. Uh, an investor bought it from the bank with the goal of flipping it. Okay. And when I first came and walked through it, uh, you know, we had all sorts of junk that was left in the house because the family had to leave quickly and mm. left a lot of stuff here mm -hmm. and then it had been sitting here forever. R ratty old carpet. Um, you saw the room with the hole in the floor upstairs mm -hmm. and the uh, real estate investor's advice I got was you put eight or ten grand into it, you slap some new carpet on the floor, new paint on the wall, you can rent it out by the room and probably put two grand a month in your pocket or get it rented and then sell it and put 50 grand in your pocket. And I said, wow. there are holes in the floor. Like there are places that clearly the, like, the floor is soft. Basically, he told you to be a slumlord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I said, no, no. Wow. But this, this is the, the problem that when we get into this mindset of real estate exists for people that have money to make more money off of, mm. um, as opposed to this could be a real asset to the community or it can be a real drag for the community. Um, there's only one way to look at that from my point of view. So the idea behind Venture House is let's find these houses, let's fix these houses up and make them into assets for the neighborhood. When you have a boarded up vacant house, uh, it probably is a center for some kind of crime. Mm -hmm. um, prostitution happens, drug use happens. Uh, people use it to, you know, keep stolen goods, whatever. Uh, that uh, has a negative effect on the neighborhood. It certainly has a negative effect on people's property values. Mm -hmm. no, nobody wants to live next to the boarded up vacant house. Right. Nobody wants to buy the house across the street from the boarded up <laughs> vacant house. You know, so fix these houses up. And then what we most need here is to support the creation of jobs and culture in this community. And unfortunately, it's getting more and more expensive if you're an entrepreneur starting a business, if you're an artist starting a career, if you're starting some kind of a nonprofit organization or a ministry, how do you get that off the ground in its early days unless somebody can help you out with that? So the idea behind Venture House is fix those houses up and then put those innovators into them mm. in a way that saves them a few hundred dollars a month on their rent or their mortgage and then help them put down roots in this community and create those jobs, create that culture, create those innovative social programs that can really transform the community over time. That's, that's awesome. So um, hypothetically, let's say this house is fully functioning. There's, there's an entrepreneur living here, but also using the house 
for um, starting their business or not just not just that person but a community of people as well correct so let's talk about a, a hypothetical venture house that's not the one that we're sitting in right now and okay and come back to that for a second so uh, a hypothetical any old venture house uh, is first and foremost residential housing right so mm -hmm. if you can legally operate your business out of it more power to you so if you have a bookkeeping service and you go out to people's businesses and mm -hmm. you come home and work on your laptop and go through their shoebox and receipts great you yeah. could do that if you're a painter and you can convert one of the bedrooms and use it as your studio space awesome mm -hmm. uh, nothing about it being a venture house though means that you should like be welding steel sculpture right. inside the wood frame house. Selling, Bad idea. Selling goods out of the living room. <laughs> right. It does not magically become like a corner store or anything like that. Um, so th that's the idea for the venture houses. And, and what we think about as uh, how this makes a difference, a lot of people we talk to maybe work in a coffee shop by day and they wait tables at night mm -hmm. and then they have some kind of cool project they're working on that they do you know, nights and weekends when they're not at work. Venture House isn't intended to be like, uh, you're fully funded and now we give you a house and income and all that. Right. It's if we could help you out and save five, six, seven hundred dollars a month on rent, could you lose that coffee shop job and spend 40 hours a week, heads down, getting your business off the ground mm. and still wait tables at night and make enough to cover that lower rent and your utility bills while you're getting your business started. Right. Can we, can we provide you a, a shorter, easier ramp to getting things started? Mm -hmm. And if that helps you get your business off the ground, that means it's faster for you to go hire your second employee and your third employee and grow your business. Right. And ideally as we create more and more venture houses, we put 10 entrepreneurs in a neighborhood now they need a place to go get coffee during the day. Mm -hmm. They need a place to go get a sandwich. They need a place to go get a drink after work. They need a place to hang out. So they start to support other neighborhood businesses as yeah. well. Yeah. That's awesome. That's um, how. So, just to uh, not not devil's advocate, but just the the question that comes to mind with me a lot of times with that is how do you avoid gentrification in that you're pushing people out of a neighborhood and eventually as if you put 10 of these homes in a neighborhood and that brings up the property value then you've got house 11 12 13 that are people that maybe are in a lower income bracket all their property values and property taxes are going up now because this entire neighborhood is raising sure so so a few things one um our focus is on abandoned houses first and foremost or or other houses that are already in some kind of distress so mm -hmm. we're trying hard not to take uh, houses off the market got it uh, we don't want to be competing for existing housing stock um, you know if somebody wants to sell their house and it's at the right price sure we may be interested in that, but, but we're not the competition in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, secondly, our houses are held in a community land trust. Mm -hmm. A community land trust means uh, if you buy the house 
you're agreeing to resell the house to somebody else in the program when you go, and you're agreeing to cap how much equity you take with you when you go. Mm. So it's affordable for you when you get into it, but it's also affordable for the next person Got it. when they get into it. So that really puts a break on gentrification. It keeps the housing prices from running away. Because mm -hmm. uh, what we often see with more traditional uh, affordable housing programs is unit of government gets a grant, buys a house, fixes it up, provides it to somebody affordably mm -hmm. in a hands-off kind of way. Right. And five years later, that neighborhood has improved dramatically and they sell and cash out and that house is not affordable to the next person behind them. Right. It's a market rate sale. Yeah. So, All right. or it's affordable to someone not in that neighborhood. Right. Precisely. It's someone that makes more money outside of the neighborhood. Right. And so restricting these two, it's always housing for innovators, for entrepreneurs, artists, gotcha. social innovators, um, puts the brakes on some of the gentrification. The way the community land trust is structured, we can sell or rent the houses, but they'll always remain in the trust. So they're always uh, <clears throat> okay. dedicated to this function. And then the other thing I think is important to recognize about gentrification when people say that they mean uh, several things at once mm -hmm. like they mean people getting displaced out of their neighborhood that they love sure but a lot of times people say gentrification and what they mean is the cost of housing in my neighborhood has gone up dramatically mm -hmm. or that there's this concentration of poverty <clears throat> in my neighborhood um, and we need to do something about that and I think a lot of times the right solution is not to figure out how do we build more housing really cheaply and keep people poor and put them in poor housing. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. better solution is how do we create jobs for people so that they can afford to stay in the neighborhood or leave the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Their choice. Yeah. Um, if you're uh, working at a very, very low income, you're kind of subject to everybody, whatever everybody else is doing. If yeah. your neighborhood uh, rapidly improves and becomes desirable for some reason, you're probably getting pushed out. You don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. If we can get you into a good job that maybe somebody from a venture house helps create, then you got the option. This is my old hood. I dig it here. I'm staying mm -hmm. here even though I could afford to leave. Or some people may make the choice, you know, I just started a family. Um, I'm glad that they're working on the schools here, but they haven't worked on them enough yet, and I want my kids in a better school, so I'm going to move to a different neighborhood where my kids go to a different school. Mm -hmm. But we really like creating jobs that create opportunity for people to make their own decisions about what neighborhood they want to stay or go. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's a good answer. Because I... Um, yeah, I mean, you see, especially in Tampa Bay area, right now, you see a lot of that. You see a lot of old neighborhoods that are poor and run down that are getting built up, which is great. Uh, but it, that balance there, to me, I think is important. It, it's really important. And, you know, the other thing I say to people, we need to keep in mind that there's no magic pause button. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we all have memories of places that we grew up or places that our family knew that are kind of the, you know, special places, special times, but none of that's reality right now today. Mm -hmm. And nothing is going to keep that always and forever that way. So we can either make 
the best possible, most responsible possible choices we can make for our neighborhoods and our communities and try to steer things in a productive direction. Or we can kind of take a hands-off approach and somebody will see dollar signs somewhere and change things for us. Mm -hmm. So our approach is to try to be very respectful of the history, the heritage in the neighborhoods where we're working uh, and to make choices that honor that and try to steer things in the most productive possible direction. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I think, uh, to, to me, there's always a balance with those, with those things. Cause you can, I think you can definitely fall and err on the side of, well, we're not going to do anything because we don't want to push anybody out. And that doesn't do anything. That doesn't do any good for anybody. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I posted something on Facebook, oh, probably a year ago or something was an article that didn't have anything to do specifically with St. Pete, but uh, talked about some of these issues. And uh, a, a well-intentioned friend who's an affluent white guy from the suburbs said, oh, there you go, you and your venture house gentrifying South St. Pete. And before I even got a chance to comment on it, one of my African-American friends from the neighborhood here said, you know, when you say you're worried about gentrification, some of us here in South St. Pete think he would rather that the poor people stay all together in mm. a little ghetto in South St. Pete. Wow. That was really powerful. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, a, a lot of the reason that we changed how we did public housing, you know, after World War II, we built these gigantic concrete bunkers and put all the poor people in them and then fenced around them and tried to keep them out yeah. of everybody else's eyesight. And we realized that that perpetuates generational poverty. Mm -hmm. And so we created a program called Section 8 that says we shouldn't concentrate poverty. We should help people get out into other communities and give them options. And uh, we could do a lot better with that. And uh, we already underfund housing programs across mm -hmm. our country, but at least that was a step in the right direction toward sure. giving people the opportunity to live in other kinds of neighborhoods and especially uh, to access school districts and, and mm -hmm. other resources. Yeah. I, but I think a lot of that stuff, for it to really, really be effective, I think that's got to happen on a local level. Yeah. More, I, for, it's weird to me, the political, political stuff, we get so concerned from the national level of things being done and we want federal government to do this, this, and this to fund all this across America instead of my, I can go down the street to my mayor's office right? and I can petition and make these kinds of things happen. I can, you know, I can get a group, like you're doing, I can get a group of people together. We can take one house at a time and put someone in it, make it affordable for them and do that once in my own neighborhood. Right. But we right. overlook a lot of that kind of stuff looking at the, well, the president or, you know, yep. federal government needs to take care of that stuff. Yep. Absolutely right. Which is, which is fascinating to me because it's also backwards to how our government system is designed. Yeah. It's designed to be local up rather than right. national down. And, and, and I, I do think, uh, as a, I don't know, political theory kind of point of view, um, the idea that the function of government is to institutionalize things in places where it's more efficient for 
somebody to do it mm-hmm. in a big way rather than everybody trying to do it in a small way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we each tried to build our own roads, right? Yeah, nobody'd get anywhere. Sure. Uh, it's simply more efficient to do that. And so I think there are some functions related to housing. I mean, I'm learning all sorts of things about all the kinds of things you have to know just to fix up one house, much oh, less yeah. to do yeah. 100 <laughs> houses. And mm-hmm. 100 houses in a city of 250,000 is a pretty small number even still. So yeah, uh, I think there's definitely a, a place for both sides of this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, don't, I don't mean to take away from... Uh, there is definitely a role from a federal level on all of that, but I think that's instead of that being our first go-to, right? Let's make our first go-to the neighborhood right here that I'm that I'm in or that I'm next to and then down down the street. Um, yeah. Uh, man, you made me think of something I was going to say there that I wanted to ask you about, and I just I lost it. Uh, so, first house that we're sitting in right now. What's your when do you feel like, or what's your goal of when it's going to be done? So the the goal for the first house, when we went out and looked around uh, starting the project, we got some, some really good, insightful advice from folks that do urban planning and, and work at this at a city kind of scale. And they said, pick the right first house and make sure it's really the Venture House Embassy. Mm-hmm. Right, that, that this is the, the place that people get to know you. It's it's the doorway that people pass through sure. uh, to contact the project. And so we went out and looked at a whole bunch of houses and found this one really cool old 1903 house. Uh, in 1903, this wasn't even in the city limits of St. Petersburg. So oh wow, who knows why somebody builds a big old house like this out in the middle of nowhere in 1903. It must be a great story, but we haven't dug it up yet. Yeah. Well, uh, especially on the south side of St. Pete in yeah. 1903, pretty much swampland out here. We're actually at a relatively high point geographically, weirdly really? enough. Okay. Um, the, the best guess anybody's come up with is that maybe this was like the owner's house in the big orange field or something like that. Mm, okay. Or some kind of agricultural operation. But, yeah. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. It's a big house for a 1903 house. It, yeah, it really is. And, you know, it, we haven't found any clear places where it was added onto except for closing in that porch. Mm-hmm. So I, best I can tell, this is basically the original house from 110 plus years ago. Wow. Um, so the, the real goal for this first house, kind of distinct from all the rest of them, is, mm-hmm. is to be a real asset to the community. You know, when you need a place for a nonprofit group to have a board meeting or your church to come have a committee meeting for the neighborhood to have a little uh, get-together, a little meet-and-greet with your city council person, mm-hmm. we want to be that kind of place. You know, anybody can do that in their living room. Sure. We're just intentionally setting up this house to be really welcoming and, right. and designed for that, so pretty excited about that yeah that's really cool um yeah i love what you're doing and i love the idea of it and i love the idea of because some people would say and it, you've learned you're doing this i mean it's a lot easier just to tear this house down and build a new one for sure um but you're not doing that yeah and i think a, a part of that is uh you know having spent almost 10 years running a business in the sustainability world mm-hmm. uh you know, I, I have this attachment to 
a lot of times people say, right, reduce, reuse, recycle. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're trying to reuse everything that we can out of here, uh, like where we know we're going to wall up a door, we're mm-hmm. peeling off the trim and we'll reuse it somewhere. Mm. We had to take down the old fireplace, but we'll reuse those bricks and build a fire pit in the backyard. Yeah. Um, all that kind of stuff that we can, you know, why not reduce the waste stream as much as we can? That's a, a responsible thing to do. And uh, so that's a piece of it for sure with the first house. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it, man. I want to I wanna have you back on as progress goes. Yeah, or, for sure. You know, when it's done and, yeah. uh, and talk some more about it too. Um couple things just to, to kind of wrap it up here. One, um, if someone someone wants to get involved, someone wants to be a part of it, how do they do that? So the best thing you could do is go on our website, www.venture-house.org, and learn more about the project. And then there's a contact page. You can send us an email through there. And uh, you know that's how we're handling people that are interested in being in a venture house. But that's also a great way to find us uh, if you want to volunteer for a work day or you're interested in sponsoring a room in the first venture house or donating mm-hmm. uh, or you have some kind of good idea with a program we could collaborate with. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that we're looking for is uh, not just for entrepreneurs to bring us projects but to grow entrepreneurs in the community. So we're working with a program called St. Pete Culinary Center mm-hmm. to train young people from South St. Pete with culinary skills to start working in fine dining restaurants downtown. Yeah. That's a, a great career path for someone. You don't need to have a college degree to do that. It doesn't really matter if you've had some kind of run-in with the law. You can still do that. Mm-hmm. Restaurants generally don't care. Show up for work, have the skills to do the job, you're hired. Uh, we're looking for those kinds of things. Uh, we've got a work day going here tomorrow with a program called Home Builders Institute. These are... Uh, kids that have had some kind of run-in with the juvenile justice world and so now they have some kind of community service obligation this program gets them back in school finish your high school diploma get some construction trades training Hmm. come out and work on a house in the neighborhood interesting Uh, great place to learn a trade and then uh, our friends at the electricians union are going to come out and volunteer when we're doing the electrical work on the house. Mm -hmm. So the kids from Home Builders Institute can work side by side with a union electrician and see, ah, that's what an electrician does. This is pretty cool, I enjoy doing this. Yeah. You make how much money? You didn't go to college to do that? Where do I sign up? So we're trying to find those kinds of uh, practical paths that we can, you know, it's not just housing, that this becomes a way to to teach people job skills. Mm -hmm. And then our hope is that Somebody who goes through the St. Pete Culinary Center program decides two years from now that they want to launch a catering business and they come stay in a venture house for a couple of years while mm-hmm. they get mm-hmm. that business off the ground. And then they hire a couple more people behind them out of the Culinary Center program to be their staff. And we start growing jobs here in a really organic way. Yeah. That's awesome. Sustainable abundance. Yep, man. Absolutely. I love it. That's, that's great. So final question to you. I always end the podcast with two questions. One to you as the guest and then one to the people listening. Um, to you, because the, the whole idea of this podcast is boldly going. Um, all, the idea, all around the idea of people that are creative, brilliant, inspirational, um, doing the thing that they love or pursuing, pursuing the thing that they love, trying to make a difference in the world. Um, curious, your opinion 
do you feel like that is something that everyone is capable of, of boldly going after their dream, their job, whatever the thing is? I think absolutely. Uh, I, I think the barriers that we put on what we can do in life are so much about uh, accepting that the usual way of doing things is a certain way, and so we should do that. Um, so, you know, if the usual path is <clears throat> go to high school, go to college, go get a job, get a promotion, buy a house, you know, there's nothing that keeps you from uh, setting that all aside and going and surfing in Costa Rica or w whatever. I, I think uh, we put the limits on our own imaginations mm -hmm. and we forget how rich the world is with possibilities. Uh, can you stand a quick story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I used to be a church music director back in the day. Wow. Uh, my first career was in music way back okay. then. So, I think you told me that before. That's right. Yeah. So I was at a conference that was like the annual statewide minister's conference. So all the you know ministers from my denomination and the lone music guy who decided to show up to see what the ministers were up to. But the guest speaker was my music director colleague from Nashville. Okay. So they've got the most awesome, cool music program because their choir and their band are mm -hmm. all session players in Nashville. Anyway, uh, he says, okay, all you fancy-schmancy ministers, close your eyes. Breathe deep. Okay. Everybody imagine that you are five years old. Are you there in the space? Are you five years old? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Ministers being very sincere. You know how this goes, right? And... Uh, he says, okay, all of you five-year-olds who can dance, raise your hand. Every hand goes up. Everybody who can draw, raise your hand. Every hand goes up. Everybody who can sing, raise your hand. He goes, okay, take a deep breath. Now you're 12. Everybody 12? Can you dance? Raise your hand. Two-thirds of the hands go up, right? Can you sing? Can you draw? Can you paint? Now picture you're 20. Now it's a third of the hands, maybe. Okay, now you're your age. How many of you actually dance, paint, draw, sing? Mm -hmm. You all could do it when you were five. Mm -hmm. What happened? We all had these amazing imaginations and the world was limitless when we were that age. Yeah. And we taught ourselves that we can't do a whole lot of things and we constrain our choices, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of those powerful experiences I've ever had that kind of still shapes my thinking about a lot of what we can actually do in life as opposed to what convention tells us we ought to do. Yeah. So all of you listening, go forth boldly and be awesome. Awesome. Um, great answer. That's a great story. And I think, too, with like what you're doing is opening, reopening that imagination for that kid living in the neighborhood that even maybe at eight years old, ten years old, has been told a lot yeah. in his childhood that you can't because you're poor or whatever whatever the case is. Like, Right. I mean, I think that's one of the most unfortunate things that came out of the Tampa Bay Times story, Failure Factories. Mm -hmm. If you go to one of those schools, what does that make you? Mm -hmm. A failure. That's what comes out of a failure factory. Yeah. And that's so not true. I mean, so yeah. many of these kids are full of life brilliant, going to do amazing things in the universe. Um, 
and the system has been stacked against them, and we have an obligation to change how the system is stacked in a way that produces a lot more opportunity for them. But yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and even how we tell them that, even if it is a quote-unquote failing school, there's probably a better way, right, to communicate that other than you're a failing school. Oh well, then I'm a failure. Yep, absolutely. So, um, great. Well, thank, dude. Thank you. And to the to the listener, question to you. You've heard uh, Frank's story. You've heard what he's doing. Um, you've heard the daunting task that he's up against. Um, but he's doing it. He's pursuing and exactly what he said: sustainable abundance. So uh, my question to you as a listener is, what can you do this week? What's the one thing you can do this week, this month, to begin that journey of boldly going uh, to take the next step? Not completely changing the power grid, but uh, changing one generator of the entire power grid in one step at a time. So look at it in that way. What's the bite-sized thing you can do this week and follow the inspiration of of, uh, Frank Wells and what he's doing with Venture House and with power? So know how to eat an elephant? Um, Yeah, one bite at a time. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Go out and take one bite out of that elephant of all the possibilities in your life and go to www.venture-house.org and get involved or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks. Absolutely. Frank, thanks for being on, man. Thanks, Jason. This was awesome. Good. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Everybody's done.